We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. You know, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Good morning, afternoon or evening, everyone. And good afternoon, Adam. Good afternoon, Richard. Okay, so we've had an interview uh, postponed, so we thought we'd have a bit of a chat instead. Um, now, usually, we, well, the episodes we've done so far have been quite factual, and we like to avoid speculating. I think this one's going to be mostly speculation, okay? I think we're going to be pontificating on what we think about the nature of conspiracy culture and state crimes and whether conspiracy helps to reveal and or conceal state crimes and, and all the rest. So a bit, bit of a more general chat prompted by uh, partly the guest we have coming on is uh, Fran Schuer, the psychotherapist who um, is part of Therapist for 9-11 Truth, right? Who has written this series of really fascinating articles on the psychology of the perception of state crime and all the ways we can be subservient to authority and, and all the rest. Really great stuff. And um, also with this uprising of attention on the coronavirus and all that that's brought up in both conspiracy culture and in the reaction of the general population. And I think specifically, what maybe captures this for me is, Adam, I sent you an article before from the BBC talking about how uh, David Icke had an interview he'd done taken off YouTube promptly afterwards. It was, it was with London Real, really interesting show, I think. And um, it was the second most up, uh, second most watched live show on YouTube that day. And uh, as soon as it was up, it was taken down and it's not allowed back up basically. So London Real are having to host it on their own website. And then the BBC published an article um, taking responsibility, saying that they contacted YouTube and must have done so very quickly, very quickly indeed. They must have been really on the board of this and, um, and, and asked why uh, David Icke was on there because he was in, um, conflict, in conflict with the terms of service. London Real said that's not the case and they never have been. And um, yeah, so the, the, the things really there were, were David Icke was talking about 5G. That's very big in, well, I, I'm reluctant to say conspiracy culture, but it is big in conspiracy culture in the minute. I don't, I don't believe, I mean that in a pejorative way necessarily. And coronavirus and the nature of coronavirus, what should be done about it, what shouldn't be done about it, and how it's from David Icke's paradigm. Um, it's bringing in the, the new world order, the one world government, the Illuminati plan if you like so uh, we, we've talked about conspiracy culture a lot uh, i think you've influenced me and changed my mind on it a bit adam so what i mean what do you make of 
all that. Well, all that going on. Sure. I mean, well, let's let's take it from David Icke's uh, uh, predicament. Um, I was I did not see David Icke's uh, video actually, but I was made aware of it on Twitter. Um, I believe it was by uh, I want to say Michael Brooks, who uh, is uh, a co-host with Sam Cedar on his show, and it was catering to David Icke's link between the uh, current pandemic and 5G towers and how 5G emits uh, harmful radiation uh, to uh, the public wherever they're stationed. Now, when this happened, now this is, of course, the, the conspiracy theory of 5G and coronavirus has gained a lot of momentum since then. Uh, but before David Icke's video, it was gaining traction uh, even just a month prior. I've been hearing about this for quite some time. When I came out with the video, it was shut down immediately because it violated the terms of service of YouTube. Now, YouTube, according to the policy I'm reading, it's that the, uh, YouTube has clear policies that prohibit videos promoting medically unsubstantiated methods to prevent uh, the coronavirus in place of seeking medical treatment. Now, that's according to the spokeswoman uh, uh, who the BBC contacted through. According to um, David Icke and according to um, London Real, they did not violate these issues. Now, I'm going to tell you there's, there's, there's two problems at play here. One is the erroneous information uh, emanated from David Icke. Now, just I think a day or two later, Mick West um, had came out with a video and his video was called Debunking Correlations Between 5G Deployments and Coronavirus. And I thought it was a, it was a decent video, actually. Uh, it was very short, about two and a half minutes. And he shows the correlation between, the disparaging correlation between uh, countries who are uh, besieged by coronavirus and the lack of cell, uh, uh, 5G cell towers. And he issues one in Italy, uh, which is the second uh, country in deaths, the United States number one in, with, uh, in regards to coronavirus. Italy has only seven 5G towers. Um, Iran, which is I think the third or the fourth most in terms of fatalities of coronavirus, uh, does not have a 5G tower. Turkey. Um, which is besieged by coronavirus now, uh, in the top 10 for fatalities, zero 5G towers. So what he's trying to tell you is that the, the countries and states here in the United States that lack 5G towers and have a uh, disproportionate amount of coronavirus cases and deaths, well, he's showing you, playing out, that there is no correlation between 5G and coronavirus. Now, in terms of... Uh, on the other end, regarding YouTube censoring uh, David Icke. Now, this is a dangerous precedent. Yes, you can use platform. You could use a platform, a private platform like YouTube. And if you um, have an account with YouTube, you are agreeing to their terms of service, their rules and regulations. Um, what you're not allowed to do is break those rules and regulations. 
and expect to not be either suspended or have your account disabled. Um, but on the other hand, I support David Icke's right to free speech. And I said this when they uh, suspended and deleted um, Alex Jones's channel uh, a couple of, I think a year back or a year prior. Now, even though I, I loathe these people like Alex Jones and David Icke being disinformation agents, but when you, when you restrict free speech, even though it's a private platform, what kind of speech in the future can be restricted as well? I mean, it could be uh, geopolitical speech or political speech, uh, religious speech. Um, I support uh, that type of speech, even though it, I may find the person uh, completely irreputable or even irredeemable. But um, I want these people to be seen by the public and show them for the frauds that they are. What happens is that when you restrict the free speech of people like a David Icke or an Alex Jones, is that you are making them martyrs, so to speak, if I can use that term loosely, um, in regards that they're saying that, you see, what I'm saying is actually the truth, in other words, and that these people who are nefarious agents or nefarious uh, individuals led by this uh, shadow government, uh, so to speak, uh, don't want me to speak about the truth. Um, so I would rather have it where the public can make their own decisions on whether these people are telling the truth or uh, producing falsehoods, rather than having a, uh, a, a public or a private platform make that decision for you. Because like I said, um, yes, you can restrict the, the speeches of these people, but it won't stop there in the future. And that's the warning that I would uh, offer to the public. Okay, um, a few, few things there. Like, with sure. firstly, the thing that comes to mind is YouTube being a private platform. Like, so YouTube and Google have effectively become the internet, right? Like, yes, there's BitChute, yes, there's podcast channels, uh, there's DTube, and other places you can upload video content. Um, but they are, in terms of numbers, insignificant compared to YouTube, right? And I do not believe that Google as an entity uh, has gotten where it is absent state involvement. Okay. So what it seems to me is that rather than the state uh, banning free speech, okay, which in Britain does actually happen because Ofcom have investigated David Icke being on another TV channel talking about stuff. So there is like direct like censorship of the media in Britain in a way there isn't in the US. But for the US government, that would be a real problem because of the First Amendment to, to ban free speech, okay? In the way that it's not a problem at all in China, say. So what seems to be happening is, like, the state is building a kind of shield around itself in terms of media companies, okay? So YouTube banning free speech or YouTube banning David Icke or anyone else is as good as a total ban because, yeah, you can have your obscure audience on BitChute and that's great, but as far as societal impact goes, that's gone, right? But no one's banning free speech. No one is um, violating the First Amendment. Oh, because look, it's a, it's a conflict of, um, of, our, of the service agreement, the user agreement, right? And I think that's, um, that's a serious problem, especially when there are links, of course, between Google and the state, the CIA, and so on, and Facebook, and these companies have not 
grown up organically and just won out on on the free market so that that what it, there does seem to be like a serious um problem there in terms of well this might not be state uh the the state banning free speech but it kind of amounts to the same thing i would i would think so um most of the the, the globe uses uh youtube and google and they know this because the, the the second well, if you if you don't use YouTube, for example, in other words, um, besides my YouTube account, I have Bitshoot. Now, Bitshoot is a little bit more uh, lenient and lax in their terms of service. Um, for example, I, I have a strike on my YouTube account, and it was because I posted a video in Arabic, which is translated to English, about uh, an Al Qaeda uh, five year uh, anniversary video regarding the uh, the attacks of September 11, 2001. The name of the video was um, the Manhattan Raid. And I got a strike. And the reason for the strike was, was that I was promoting violence. Because in the video, it shows um, the martyrdom wills of certain hijackers and um, their displeasure toward the United States and Israel. And they show planes crashing to the World Trade Center. Well, it's hypocritical to say the least, because I have other videos on my YouTube playlist where I have missed videos showing planes impacting the World Trade Center. Wouldn't that be promoting violence as well? So in other words, it's almost like they're selecting what videos or what terminology to use in order to say or to define the use of violence. So, so in other words, the use of the word violence. Well, that's a, it's a really vague term. And I think that's quite dangerous. It's almost like um, John Yu, who is a uh, White House appointed lawyer who created the document to allow torture to be used on Guantanamo and black site detainees, CIA black sites. And the, the, the definition of the word torture was so vague that there was no refined uh, definition. So they used all types of torture methods. Well, that's what I think is happening here in terms of the commodification between YouTube and Google is that they have defined the terms of uh, violence or threat or conspiracy to leave it open to any definition. Mm. And they, yeah. leave it, oh, they leave it up to the people who are, um, you know, I guess, viewing or uh, monitoring uh, these videos by these large channels, even small channels like myself. Well, yeah, it, it's interesting because in, in the same way we talked about um, the United States government established precedent where it can assassinate Americans through the use of killer robots without trial, okay? And it established that with um, Al-Awlaki. Uh, but you, of course, you go to a terrorist, you go to someone to extreme to establish a precedent like that. Oh yeah, and it's overseas. It's not inside the United States, okay? But if you go on holiday to France now, Adam, can the US government kill you with a drone without trial? Because that precedent has been established, you know? So you always have to establish things in the extreme. And with the banning of someone like Alex Jones, I think um, it's probably fair that Alex Jones did some stuff we could all complain about, particularly with Sandy Hook and, and the rest. Um, but so everyone's talking about that, right? Everyone talks about Alex Jones going. No one talks about Alison Weir disappearing from YouTube, the author of Against Our Better Judgment. Really solid, sensible commentator on um, the Israel-Palestine conflict. And 
she went way before Alex Jones did. So there's a big media hype about like the, the, the big fish going, but there's lots of others being cleared out behind the scenes there um, un, under this cover now. And another thing about, um, this might be interesting to discuss because I don't think we have entirely the same opinion on the role of the conspiracy theorist in society. Um, but Alex Jones, like him or hate him, he did some really historically important interviews in his time, okay? Like when we were doing the 1993 bombing stuff, um, Alex Jones produced two interviews with Imad Salem. I couldn't even find one of them, right? But I, th I found one and used it. And um, things like um, just other occasions on the top of my head, I can remember, Alex Jones um, interviewed British agent Kevin Fenton, who infiltrated the IRA. That's the only interview I know of with Kevin Fenton. Okay, of that nature. Um, the other guy, the author of Steak Knife, uh, names are going to come to my head right at the moment, but uh, similar thing, right? Same thing. And people who really weren't interviewed anywhere else. So to label Alex Joe, so, okay, for one, there's, there's a lot of important information where you just get rid of these channels, historically important information. And what does that say that you lose historically important information? That asks the question, like begs the question, well, why is Alex Jones producing historically important information? It's because no one else was really bothered to do lengthy interviews with Imad Salem. No one else bothered to get in touch with uh, British agents who had things to say about the uh, British Secret Services in the North of Ireland and do extensive interviews with them. Alex Jones did. So in that sense, it seems to me that the, the far-out conspiracy theorist plays a role in society because it's not a role that anyone else is picking up. This was more prominent with 9-11. Now, I, I'll, I'll say this much. The most popular documentary in all of 9-11 and probably in history is Loose Change, even though it's the most erroneous or one of the most erroneous. But what Loose Change did, if you, there's a flip side to that coin, is what Loose Change did was bring about the attention of state-governed involvement with September 11, 2001, in which there was, but not to the extent that they portrayed it as. But without that film, you probably wouldn't have had as many people in the truth movement as you would have in the beginning. Um, it gave the traction after 2006, and I did a couple of revisions because they made some errors in the film, but even after the revisions, the, the film in totality was pretty lacking in terms of information, and some of it was downright erroneous. But um, it, uh, what was the, the bigger way in? Was it the conspiracies or the erroneous information? that came from the film, or did it bring about new people, a lot more people to the attention of 9-11 Truth than any other individual or film? Well, I leave that up to the viewer or the listener. Well, I think it's a very hard question to answer, right? Because I have to say, prior to um, talking to you, one of the things you probably, I don't know if changed my mind is the right word, but opened up a different perspective on was the damage. I, I'm more aware of the damage of conspiracy, that conspiracy theories do. Okay. Or let's not say conspiracy theories. Cause I guess like what we're into is in some way conspiracy theories. Um, but the, the damage of like erroneous information. Okay. Because essentially like erroneous information, um, uh, can be used to cover state crimes. Okay. Like far out conspiracy theories, if mm. you like. So um, the classic example we always return to, is that um, if you say no plane hit the Pentagon, you're not worried about who was on the plane that didn't hit the Pentagon, apparently, you know? Right. And you're not worried that the CIA was looking after the hijackers and protecting them from arrest uh, from the FBI. And 
it's absolutely damn certain that people in the Alex station that were doing that kind of thing uh, for the CIA uh, must be very grateful for all the people who say no plane at the Pentagon. Right. You know, it, it's, it's got to be, right? So, and we see this, right? That if you're trying to get some sensible movement going to um, take this up to court um, and to actually prosecute for the crimes of 9 11, uh, erroneous conspiracy theories will derail that. And in the media, right? Like, who are the people that are always on the media? You don't see like uh, Paul Thompson going on Fox News or Kevin Fenton or um, any of the people that have done really solid work on this. It's always people who are like Morgan Reynolds came up, went on, right? With his whole uh, no plane hit the towers thing. It was a hologram. And I actually, I find like Morgan Reynolds particularly hard to pigeonhole because I, I like everything he says. Uh, and then he says no plane, it was all a hologram, you know? So strange guy. Um, so there's that whole side of it that it does cover up state crimes um it, it contributes to that and that begs the question of course like well who, who is actually propagating these uh, the more extreme end of conspiracy theory really like because you can't ignore that if the state wants to cover up a crime that would be the way to do it okay you just make up ridiculous stuff it's far more effective than than denying stuff um but the other side of this coin is the amount of people it draws in like it's got to be a net benefit to drawing people in right now maybe drawing people in isn't actually a good thing maybe you don't need millions and millions of people to have some vague notion that 9-11 was an inside job to go after a kind of effective prosecution of the case there maybe a small number of dedicated people is actually more effective in that way i don't know but from my perspective um i got into this stuff from reading a david ike book because that I just found it on a bookshop shelf, right? That's the thing. And then after a break, when I got back into it, when you, when you would like type 9-11 inside job into YouTube or whatever, what would come up would be Alex Jones videos, okay? And I feel like I learned a lot from Alex Jones because he did some really, really good interviews with some really interesting people over the years. And I gravitated away from him. There was no moment where I said, oh, I'm not listening to this guy anymore. But I started to listen more to the people he was interviewing. Like he, he featured Peter Dale Scott in one of his documentaries. I think he, um, I think he interviewed him uh, as well. And um, okay, so that, yeah, he looks really interesting. And uh, I think James Corbett had, uh, maybe was tangential or was around that kind of culture. Um, Sybil Edmonds, all, all sorts of people that I gravitated away from Alex Jones. And, and partly the gravitation was because Alex Jones would have articles on um, about the State Department buying 10,000 guillotines or something, you know, or like Bill Gates uh, talking about how he's going to wipe out Africa with vaccinations. And you'd feel like, that can't be true. Like, literally, would look at it and read through it and go, oh, no, he's just like, he's put this really weird spin on it that I don't, I don't even see how he could have read that into it. Like, because, you know, even if Bill Gates does have some secret plan to wipe out Africa with like poisons in his vaccines, he's not going to do a TED talk on it. You know, and he didn't. He just what, what essentially that was was Bill Gates made like a very perfectly sensible point about if you um, the way to lower population or stop rampant population growth is to have like stability in terms of health. So people have lots of kids if they expect their kids going to die. So if you can get kids to grow up and not die, people will start having less kids. That's a, that's just like common sense, right? So he, <laughs> so he was talking about, but Alex Jones took that as Bill Gates is lowering the population of vaccines. Right, which is, well, yeah, that, that's kind of true, but not in, at all in the way that Alex... And this kind of thing, it's like, I just feel like I'm wasting my time with this guy, you know? Just like, so I, I'd stop listening to him, you know? Um, but then I'm left to wonder, well, what is the role of... Cons what, 
this conspiracy theory in society. Like, so I, I see positives and negatives, you know, and it's almost as if, um, you know, just in the way that religions has like an inner and outer mysteries, right? And there's something you get into before you know the truth. It's almost like some of the ideas are very complex and difficult, you know, um, because essentially um, it's not just they're even difficult. It's that in getting into this, I'm reshaping my worldview because my worldview prior to like reading that David Icke book was so conventional, was so BBC, right? That And, and this world is like, the idea of like the CIA being in any way, in any way involved in the drugs trade was like, you know, saying two plus two equals five to me. You know, it just seemed like that is just completely impossible. Okay. That one's true. <laughs> you know, uh, the lizard people, maybe not, but the, the drug, yeah, definitely the drugs trade is. Um, so it's almost as if what, if I was to look at it in a positive sense, what someone like Ike or Alex Jones does is they create an entirely different world, right? Like, an entirely different construct, which may in some ways be fictional. I, I, I don't know, but maybe it's not the truth, right? And then through stepping out of the conventional world I was in and into this other fantastical realm, um, I had like two things to compare. And then through comparing the two, I could come to a place of integration. So with the matrix analogy then, that you know, a lot of conspiracy theory is like, take the red pill, right? as opposed to the blue pill, because the blue pill is like going back to sleep in the world of illusion, right? So I, I was like a blue pill person until I was 18, read David Icke, and then I took the red pill. But the way I've come to see it is, um, the red pill doesn't actually offer truth. It's not a choice between falsehood and truth. The red pill offers a different illusion, okay? But you need to take it, and you need to go into the illusion, and then you can integrate the two illusions to find something between blue and red, something that's, that's true. So that, that's my... If I was to make a case for the value of conspiracy theory, that would be it. I, I would agree to this, but also I, I must add, in terms of conspiracy itself, they're multifaceted. And I, I think the best explanation for the classification of conspiracy theories belonged to Michael Barkin, who's a, uh, an American academic and a professor emeritus at the... Uh, Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. Now he classifies conspiracy theories in three uh, categories. One is event conspiracy theories. Now this refers to like a limited, uh, well-defined event like 9, September 11, 2001 or the JFK assassination. Um, another classification would be systematic conspiracy theories. These are usually conspiracy theories that have broad goals. Um, usually conceived as like securing control of a country, a region, um, or even the entire world. And this is re in reference to uh, groups of people like Jews, Freemasons, or the Catholic Church. And the third conspiracy classification is the super conspiracy theory. These are theories which link multiple conspiracy theories together. Um, which show like a hierarchy, which is an all distant powerful force that isn't defined or known. Now, these are people, the people who propagate these issues are like a David Icke, um, an Alex Jones, or a William Cooper. And when Barkham wrote the paper on this, I, I, I agreed with this. I said, yes, those are three great uh, classifications that they're defined. And this is something I've saw. Uh, which was proliferating from an event like a September 11, 2001, 
where I saw people propagating each theory separately. And once in a while, they'll intertwine with each other at times. But most people that entertain the super conspiracy theories um, go off, off the plank or off the fringes, I would say. You have rational people who entertain conspiracy theories. And these are conspiracy theories that you can actually know of. And this is why I always refer to E. Martin Schutz, who is a, um, a psychoanalyst out of Massachusetts. He's also a, um, a JFK researcher. And he wrote the book, um, History Will Not Absolve Us. And he has uh, the most influential quote of my life. And it, it's a quote of belief versus knowledge, where he, I won't read you the whole quote, but he, in essence, he says, that the, the, the problem with the American public is that they're allowed to believe anything, but to know nothing. Because when you can know something, you can act on it. Um, you can believe no plane hit the Pentagon. You can believe no planes hit the World Trade Center or uh, a directed anti-weapons uh, melted towers from the sky. But do you know it? Because when you know something, you can act on it. You, you can believe whatever you want, but you can't open up a freedom of information request regarding um, no plane hit the Pentagon. It doesn't even make sense. What are you filing for? So in other words, they're held in a state of belief because when you, when you have knowledge, you can make a decision whether it's true or not. With belief, you can't say that. So organized intelligence operatives like the CIA or like the Israeli Mossad or the Pakistan or whatever that deals in misinformation deals with the idea of belief, a conspiracy theory that details in belief because you're always left in a reciprocating or a repetitious nature of thought where I don't know if it's true and I don't know if it's not. So then you're always held in a state of belief for weeks, months, even years. Mm. Okay. I mean, that's, that's really fascinating. I think the, the classification is very helpful. So I'd like to challenge you on some of that right? Most of what we do and have done in the series has been in the first group, okay? Like limited event stuff. We're trying to understand what happened in a particular aspect of 9-11. I think the last recording we put out was about able danger. What happened inside the Defense Intelligence Agency's particular intelligence operation in the lead up to 9-11? How much details can we um, get of that? And more than that, what can we know? Okay. Like we could speculate as to the motivations, but as to why um, information wasn't passed to the FBI, why information wasn't acted on uh, either in the, the DIA or in the CIA or with regard to um, opening Zacharias Masawi's laptop. But can we know that it's not a normal procedure, the way things proceeded? And I think that that's because you can't know people's motivations, right? You can't know whether someone didn't pass on information because they, um, they didn't want the, they knew the attacks coming, they didn't want to go ahead, but you can, you can know whether things are normal procedure. So we, I think that's um, something that I'm pleased with in the way that we uh, do the series and everything is that we try to nail it down to things that you can know. Okay. Um, so that's great. We also talk um, sometimes, or, you know, in, in, in the interviews and sometimes probably quite a bit, you know, after the, we stopped rolling about like level two, right? If I'm, if I'm getting levels right of, well, okay, you have to ask what's the wider framework that this whole thing, all this stuff we tell 
fits into. And I, I think that level two conspiracy, as you're describing it, like doubtlessly goes on, right? So, I mean, my perhaps favorite example is um, Zionism, because it's something that kind of didn't exist, and then it did, and then it became a state, whereas like all the states just go right back into history. So you have this ideology uh, in the 1890s of um, a homeland for the Jewish people, Theodore Herzl and all that, thinking, okay, well, it could be in South America, it could be in Uganda, ideally in the Middle East, don't know if we'll get that one. And it's kind of, it has no funding, no backing, it's going nowhere. And then through amazing ingenuity and planning and, and foresight, and one of the, you know, incredible story, really, um, 50 years later, they've got a nation state, right? Now, for an ideology to acquire a nation state is incredible. Ideologies may infiltrate nation states. You could say that the neocons have an ideology, and that infiltrated and took over the United States. But for an ideology to get a nation state is like, you know, I couldn't really think of too many examples of that. Um, and then it's a nation state with an ideology of a nation state with nuclear weapons, right? So it's become, you know, that, that's, that's incredible. Um, and you can see they conspire, right? The, the, there are limited conspiracies in Israel, like the, the, the bombing of the King David Hotel to keep the British involved in the area, um, the attack on the USS Liberty, probably to draw the Americans into a war with Egypt. Um, you can see there are limited conspiracies, but there's like a level two, as I'm getting the descriptions right, um, of a wider plan of sustaining and expanding this uh, Zionist state over a period of decades to like a century or more. You know, so that's that's going on, too. And you could say um, in the United States, there are ideologies like the idea of building an American empire um, that you can point to as existing. And maybe it goes deeper than that, maybe because I think that really the real power in the States is um, the sustained power, say, is not really particularly nationalistic. It's more like an international banker class who don't have. The Star Spangled Banner flying in, on a flagpole in their front gardens on their estates, you know, that they, they, they consider themselves to be more internationalists. And the US empire is more of a vehicle for, that they're driving for now and will discard in the future. So, um, yeah, we can talk about that, but we have to start at some point to bring speculation into that, right? Because it, this is not an entity that particularly wants to be known. So, um, what you can definitely say about it starts to disappear off the deeper you go. And then this third idea, in sense, like whether it's David Icke's reptilians or something like that, but the, well, I mean, that just gets into questions that necessitate speculation because, you know, unless you have a really firm belief one way or the other, uh, we don't know exactly what reality is and where it's come from and where it's going to and what worlds do or don't exist beyond this one and what, how those worlds may or may not be influencing this one. So, you know, are there disincarnate entities that whisper in the ears of world leaders and they're, really, they're the real, real force behind the new world order? Well, we, we just don't know, right? So, and I don't know, and then if, if, we, if you don't know too much, then it becomes like a limited value in talking about it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm sure I had a question in my mind for you, Adam, when I started uh, talking, I've, I've forgotten it now, so I'll ask you to comment instead and I'll try and think of my question. No, I think I know exactly where you were going with it. Um, I think the difference between what we talk about in our Road to 9-11 series and through our podcasts and those who entertain uh, the more unrefined conspiracy theories is that we can narrow down through information that can be 
uh, obtained. So we're refining our information in a way where we could show a connected dots type of pattern. Um, for example, um, you brought up Able Danger, um, which was a, uh, a defense intelligence agency program led by uh, General Shoemaker and General Hugh Shelton. Well, that actually was true. I mean, there's documents and files and people were interviewed later on, like Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer, where he states that it was an operation run by the Army um, in regards to collecting data regarding terrorist um, organizations worldwide. And they found two or three that were existing in the United States. Well, that's true. But that, that doesn't necessarily... Now, what could emanate from that is that well, in conspiracy theories that arise from that is that, oh, look, uh, because they, they uh, subjugated uh, Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Shaver and they suspended his security clearance and they didn't want to um, uh, let him go from the, the, uh, from the Army. And this is, this is a, a huge conspiracy involving the Army, the State Department, and what have you. But, you know, and, but the, the options are unlimited. That's not exactly true. Um, yes, there were some elements within the Pentagon um, that didn't want him to talk about what he told to Philip Zelko and the 9-11 Commission in 2003. Now, is that, should we just point the blame and say it's the whole U.S. Army, for example, or was it uh, SOCOM lawyers that didn't want him to speak about the issue and ordered him to destroy the information that he collected. Now, who were these people? Well, these are people that you can obtain through documents and files uh, that were released to the public. What, unfortunately, this is a popular uh, scenario, is that you have a majority of people within, say, the 9-11 truth movement that go beyond that and say that, well, I really don't trust anything that comes out of, like, the U.S. Army or comes out of the Pentagon or State Department, and they throw away the evidence, even though it's factual, and, and replace it with the speculative, uh, fantastical ideas that have been told to them, because a lot of these people don't actually care to read the other side of the story, in other words. So what they do is they'll listen to somebody that caters to their worldview. This is a, this is a problem that I've noticed more prominently in my, and this is coming from my experience only, in my, my years of, like, reading, uh, comments on forums like Facebook or Twitter, for example, or even YouTube, where you have a lot of these people that are inherently biased through their racial worldview, through their religious worldview, or political worldview, or a combination of all three. And this allows them to say, like those, for example, who don't believe a plane hit the Pentagon or the World Trade Center, usually like to blame two apparatuses, the CIA and the Israeli Mosul. On the flip side of that coin, by holding those views, it actually absolves those entities from having any complicity into 9-11 tax or for knowledge. And this is something that I did uh, an article on Medium, and I did a video on my YouTube channel about the problem, uh, the nature of conspiracy theorists in the 9-11 truth movement. And I think that's just one example. And there are many examples of these people that cater to selective worldviews, like Christopher Bowling, for example, caters to a large percentage 
of people who are anti-Zionist or anti-Jew, or they, the people who are anti-Jewish like to hide behind anti-Zionism because it makes them feel more uh, morally superior. Oh, I'm against the, the, uh, the, gov the far-right government of Israel. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a great cause because I feel that the Likud party is, uh, you know, almost like a gang of sorts. But their, their, um, their agendas, this, this bowling group, are much more nefarious and usually largely irresponsible in their terms of research because they won't question Bowling's views. They'll question everybody else's, but not his. And by doing so, you're just like subjugating yourself into a sect or a select group of people that caters to your worldview. Okay, but it's difficult, isn't it? With like, I can understand when your worldview shatters, it's hard to find a new one, and you can just keep falling and falling and falling until your feet land firmly on the flat earth. You know what I mean? It's yeah. um, when you because there are levels of um, cover up that go on. For example, um, oh, what's the guy that the name of the guy in the fifties who was? Um, he worked at the weapons lab and got thrown out of the hotel window. Oh. His name just left my head. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Um, so the reason I, I bring him up, when his son investigated the case, um, the, the initial thing was that he committed suicide, right? And um, then uh, it was, they, the CIA let, let them know that he'd been involved in taking LSD some way related to MK Ultra. Frank uh, Olson was the name. Frank Olson, he was Frank, yeah. That's, um, and he'd gone out of the window under the influence of LSD, right? And that was also a cover-up, right? Then his son basically proved beyond reasonable doubt that he'd been thrown out of the window uh, because of whatever he'd seen to do with bioweapons or soldiers in Korea or anything. So I'm citing that as an example of where there's layers of deception. So you think you found something solid. Okay, he was involved in this secret program experiment. That's another lie, right? So, you know, you could then say, of course, well, maybe the thing about him being thrown out is a lie. You know, maybe uh, he, what, it wasn't the weapons lab, the bioweapons stuff he'd seen. Maybe it wasn't like human experimentations or soldiers in Korea. Maybe he'd found out about like the cover-up of aliens, right? Maybe he'd found out that the earth was hollow or flat or something, you know? And that, that, that's what's really going on. Um, or maybe they interject a story that he found out the earth was hollow to cover up that he, about bioweapons. So when you lose the, the, the trust you have in the institutions of society, the media, academia, to deliver truth, then you can just keep falling and falling. You know, and you end up not believing anything. Um, and that's... You know, I, I don't know that I have a, a ready-made solution to that, right? Of, of well, but I can acknowledge that it is a problem. Well, it's it's hard to explain because if a person usually the general public is born within a divisive worldview uh, called the human construct, whether it be religion, politics, or racism, and it's almost like if they're born into this uh, construct as, as, and seen as normalcy, which is not, because all three 
have two things in common. One, they're divisive, inherently divisive. And two, they're unnatural. They're learned. Uh, you're not born a racist or not born of any political or religious affiliation. But because you're programmed by these uh, constructs at a very young age into the present moment, it's hard for somebody to alleviate these uh, constructs from the mind. Now, I have come from a very secular household. We didn't really talk about uh, God or religion. So I was an atheist uh, throughout most of my life. We didn't really vote. I, I actually, I've, I personally voted once and it was for Roth Perot uh, because he made me laugh at one one commercial. Um, but racism was, a, was an agenda in my early years. So I had to, and it took me a very long time to get rid of these applications and know that these are false paradigms that are um, meant to seclude the individual into a, a catered group and make them feel almost special in that regard. In terms of studying human events like a 9-11, a JFK, uh, or even World War II, anything that delves into um, the unknown, we don't know uh, the, uh, the perpetrators of JFK or 9-11 yet. Uh, we can definitively say, yeah, there, there were certain elements involved, but we can't say for sure. The, the divisive natures of worldviews actually lead you away from looking at all information. And this was something that I needed to do when I got into the aspect of looking at 9-11 in 2006 because I was an anti-theist for many years and I had to change that about my life because I found out that I was wrong. I was listening to the works of Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and um, their views about religion were correct but not about spirituality, for example. And their, innate, their understanding of theology was quite biased. So I, it took me a long time. Um, you know, I had a channel on YouTube dedicated to Christopher Hitchens. And for two years, I was in denial. That's the psychology within the stages of denial. First, you're uh, angry and you're, you're out, you deny it. And then you relent afterwards. But that, the time periods are, all, you know, are undefined. It's basically up to the individual. I think it's, if you want my opinion about the, the nature of 9-11 and inquiry, I think it's uh, much too late. I think there's too many people within the, the two paradigms of debunkers and truthers that have been so absolved within their worldviews and that the information that came from these people um, have dominated the spectrum of 9-11 investigation. Uh, whereas if we caught up, you know, rational investigation, it would take many years. And I think this is going to go down the road of like, say, JFK, where 60s and 70 years from now, we're going to be talking about maybe Alex Station or maybe the Ahmed al Hado house, which are, which should have been at the forefront of all 9-11 investigation. Because now you can see how the intelligence apparatuses of Israel, of Saudi Arabia, of the United States, involved themselves with 9-11 pre and post. Not this fantastical scenario of no planes or as I call them half planes, people who believe planes at the World Trade but not Shanksville Pentagon. And then you have the Judy Woods of the two energy weapons. These are all meant to obfuscate 
real rational researchers who want to look at information in a non-biased, non-judgmental worldview and then make a decision. And that's what I think people like Alex Jones or David Icke do is that they are, and I'll be very careful here, they're meant to label actual responsible researchers as nutty as they are. But I can't say that Alex Jones is a manufactured accent because I have no proof, but I've always believed that that's exactly what he's meant to do. Okay, Adam, let me ask you this then, okay? So one, um, an issue, that, like, so my sort of other interest in life, I've um, been very involved in kind of Eastern philosophy and meditation, okay? And an issue in that area has been authoritarian teachers, okay? Or I could say teachers who present a lot of certainty about their worldview, their own state of consciousness, state of enlightenment, and their worldview. Um, and that certainty is attractive. And I suppose you could find a parallel in Christianity there, okay? That a lot of the very popular evangelical preachers present themselves as having it all figured out, right? And they may say, oh, it's not me, it's the Bible, I'm just going to read the Bible, but it's really them, right? Because they've got the correct interpretation. And there's something compelling about certainty. And there's also something compelling about certainty to a person who has had their worldview shattered, okay? So if you have some kind of spiritual or mystical experience, which totally ruptures your, your normal sense of reality, there's a likelihood you might gravitate to someone who offers an explanation of that, okay? And if that person seems very certain in their explanation, then that's compelling. But such people are not always the healthiest, let's say, because people who are very certain in their worldviews are often kind of delusional or narcissistic in some way. Um, so if we turn to conspiracy culture then, right? Now, if I was sat here with David Icke and I said, okay, David, what, what's the meta theory? What's it all about? He would have it from the top down. I mean, he explains the conspiracy, in some of his books, like he's explained the conspiracy from the moment of the creation of the universe onwards. But I'm not exaggerating there, right? Talking about like deep archetypal forces that are coming into being of good and evil and how that plays out. There's a whole mythos to, to what he does. And then you get down to, you know, Babylonian brotherhoods that have existed for thousands of years and operate through secret societies. And then beyond that, you've got the reptiles in the lower fourth dimension. Okay. So you've got a very complete story there. And it's not like Alex Jones, not as much, but the longer Alex Jones went on, the more kind of spiritual forces and archontic entities came into it. Okay. Uh, but Alex Jones really had a lot of certainty around, like, it's all about the new world order. Right. So back, back in this world, um, and I think that there's a reality to this. I do think there's a movement to, you know, have us all on the same farm in some way, all the populace and um, the growths of these institutions like the World Bank and the UN, they're not just sort of accidental, they're not um, benign institutions looking out for human well-being, that they are about global hegemonic control from an elite group, maybe not always the same elite group, the group might change, but the elite in any, in any time, the deep state. Um, so like, yeah, if I speak to one of them, I can get a kind of certainty of like, oh, that's, that, I'm in the ballpark. I know kind of roughly the landscape. If I ask Adam Fitzgerald, okay, Adam, like beyond, you know, whatever happened to Alex Station, 
whatever was going on at the DIA, beyond even 9-11, you know, what's the wider picture this fits into you? Now, what kind of answer can you give to that question? And that's actually, just to qualify, I'm not even really asking what kind of answer you can give, but I'm asking, well, I am asking that, but in addition to that, I'm asking what answer is it possible for someone in your position who is taking uh, this very erudite view of things and being very careful, capable of giving, if you stick to that, can you give a kind of meta answer to the nature of what's going on, how has it transpired over the past hundred years, what's the ultimate agenda, these kind of things, in the way an Alex Jones could, or in any way approaching that? What, how, how do you answer that question? My, my answer would be I'm, it's quite, I'm quite more multifaceted in my answer than to say Alex Jones. Alex Jones, for example, will narrow down 9-11 into simplistic conspiracy terms, whereas he'll just say it's a product of the New World Order or the Illuminati, unrefined entities that could be anything, for example. 9-11, for me, is a multifaceted uh, answer. It's not just basically just the Zionists. It's not basically just the Saudis or just the CIA or the NSA or the Pentagon. It's a combination of all of these and probably even more uh, if we add in the Pakistan ISI. Um, so you have a lot of these entities at play and which seems to be quite an overwhelming amount of information and it is. And it was meant to be that way. And this is another facet that you could look at and where the common person who doesn't know really much about say geopolitics or the intelligence apparatuses will look at that and say, well, this is just too big for me and I'm not even going to entertain the issue at all. Now that's the majority of the public. 9-11, the, the aspect of 9-11 itself catered and it molded over decades and involved almost like, almost like a, com a combination of a multitude of countries and corporations and agencies and individuals. And it didn't start off that way. I mean, every starting point has a single unit where I, that's why I wanted to do the series with you in that I wanted to show that there's a starting point. And from that starting point is you can show through history and through documentation and, fa and files, and you could see how it, began to grow in its own, like, uh, into its own um, unit in itself, and it, and it grew over time, whereas a lot of these individuals and agencies and organizations began to uh, use the event or use the information and then take advantage of it afterward. Remember, only 3,000 people were killed on 9-11, but by allowing these attacks to happen, and using these uh, agendas from these people who perpetrated this, they used it for a multitude of reasons. Okay, okay. But your answer, I think, reveals something there, right? That at one point you said, a lot of people look at this and go, like, it's so motivated. Wow, it's just too much for me. Okay. Now, probably if I was to pick a book and say, yeah, this is like the book that I've um, liked the most, found the most important about neither, you can't narrow it now to one. But I really like Peter Dell Scott's The Road to 9-11, okay? And I think the reason for that is because it gives a lot of the geopolitical context of 9-11. And that's why um, we kind of named the series after it, in a sense. And because and it gives us that there are multiple roads to 9-11 that 
come into producing the event. Um, now, I can't remember if it's that, but I think it might be another book of Scots, actually, that quotes in. I'm going to kind of murder it or sort of give it in the way that it, it spoke to me. Peter Dale Scott kind of gave us the term the deep state in, in English. He took it from Turkish politics, but that's where I'm, as far as I'm aware, it comes from. And I recall him defining that as in contrast to a classical conspiracy theory. There's, we live in a multipolar world, okay, of like there's, there's competing power structures and you can't really see necessarily what's going on. But what you can say is that movement on the surface is caused by movement in the depths, right? And I think it's entirely accurate. But I can only begin to relate to a concept like that because I previously knew what a conspiracy theory was. So a conspiracy theory, the classical conspiracy, posits very much a unipolar world, right? It's the Illuminati. They want their one world government, okay? Whereas like the concept of a deep state is a multipolar world with the poles being in the depths, okay? But I would say there's no way I could transition. Is there no way? I don't know. Hard thing to say. I am skeptical that I could transition from what I knew about the world age 18, my sort of BBC entirely conventional, only looking at the surface view, to the kind of world that someone like Peter Dale Scott is presenting without going through conspiracy theory in the middle, right? Because it's like this really simplified version of what you're talking about you know, with like different forces interacting and deep events and all the rest. Do, do you see what I mean there? And that's why I, I maintain, well, gosh, is there, is there a role for conspiracy theory? And if we didn't have them, what would replace that intermediary step? If, well, it's, it's basically it comes down to what we can know and what we cannot know. Let's, for example, I'll be a little bit more refined in my answer. Um, we do know that there were three entities at play here, the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. In regards to the political motivations and also in regards to uh, their intelligence apparatuses motivations, these can either, uh, I think either one have different agendas and they can both coexist at the same time. For example, if we look at Israel, what, what did, what did Israel stand to benefit from 9-11? Well, twofold. One is that they could continue subjugating the Palestinian people without any real outcry at the human rights violations visited upon the Palestinians every day because the general public will look at Arabs and Muslims as the same and they'll just demonize them anyway. Two, um, Israel stands to benefit with the invasion of the United States military into these Arab countries, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, for example. So what are, what are the benefits of Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia looks at the invasion of Shiite countries uh, because they're using it as a religious perspective, basically. Um, Saudi Arabia also has the benefits of having the American military uh, protect them as well because they don't have a really a formidable standing military. So they get rid of people like Saddam Hussein in Iraq, um, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya in, in time. Um, they tried with Bashar Assad in Syria, usually, but that failed. With the United States, it's multifaceted. The United States now implements the Patriot Act, North Defense uh, uh, Act, 
the, um, the Freedom Act years later, which replaced the, the Patriot Act, the NSA, a blank check, um, building of the Utah Data Center, collecting information on Americans, um, and also from the Pentagon standpoint, um, the exasperate or the extension of the American military into further Eurasia, into further uh, Middle East. And we would have the complete backing of the American people into the invasion of these Middle Eastern countries with no hesitation whatsoever, as opposed to saying, like, what's the, uh, the one line that's often quoted in the um, Project for New American Century, which is often a misquote by most people, is that um, save the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the American military wishes to expand it to these regions, uh, but we needed a new Pearl Harbor of sorts. Well, that's not necessarily true. I mean, we were still expanding into these regions, but with 9-11, that expedited the, um, the, the, the rush for uh, the American military to build these uh, bases in places like um, Iraq, uh, um, Libya, Syria, um, and those places. And we're seeing it more now tenfold with all these entities that, uh, and their agendas. We could see it now more profoundly at this present moment than we did in 2001, because what did we know about 2001? Well, we only knew what the media told us. Yeah. It wasn't until that these conspiracy theorists came out in 2005 and six, where they promulgated these conspiracy theories, which made these entities um, look more um, miraculously more powerful when they, were, they weren't. Uh, so they, they, in other words, they created these um, scenarios which weren't true and which really absolved them um, in their uh, complicity for the 9-11 attacks. Okay, I'll, I'll ask you, did you ever go through a conspiracy theory stage yourself? I'm not even necessarily buying into them. Because I mean, what, you, what you're making me wonder is, like, I wonder if instead of picking up a David Icke book um, that day in the bookstore, let's say I picked up not a Peter Dale Scott book, because I've already said I think that would be just too difficult. But what about if I picked up a John Pilger book? Okay, because I, I went on and read, like, John Pilger's collected works, um, and they're fantastic. Um, and it really informed me as to the nature of the empire, really, both Britain and America, the imperial nature of the state, I would say, and how what you see on the news is a propagandist effort to cover that up. So that also had a, a big influence on shifting my worldview. And I don't know what it would have been like if I'd read that first, say. Or a book that I often think if I was going to recommend a book to someone, to start them off on this, um, I might, and it's a strange choice, but I think I might recommend John Perkins. Um, what's his first book called? It's just left there. It's not the American Empire one. It's um, uh, the yes, the economic uh, economic hitman. Yeah. Now I say it's a strange choice because I don't know if anything in that book is actually well. It, yeah, John, I know John Perkins kind of was who he said he was. I don't know if everything in the book is true. Right? Maybe, maybe it is. And I don't really have it. There's nothing in there that makes me think, oh, that's just ridiculous. But you know, it actually makes a lot of sense that people, when you go behind closed doors at the World Bank, there would be this intense level of cynicism, okay? But I don't know if he was recruited by the NSA. Or I don't know if he's, like, a cutout in some way. Um, it is verified by the journalist, I, from the, the journalist Greg Pallast, um, knew him from his days at um, this industrial firm, mainly worked at. But why I often think about that book 
is because it's another of those books that entirely breaks the paradigm, right? It, John Perkins makes the case, yeah, the state, like the, the state, the security state, the empire is evil, and they're not going into these countries to help you know, third world people build hydro dams. They're going in to expropriate money from them. And when you understand that, you can then read all this other stuff. Go, okay, everything you've said just makes sense. But what I think, Adam, is like, if, I, if myself, age 18, just heard what you were saying there, you know, I think, well, this guy's crazy. Like, America's not an empire. They're not going into Iraq for resources. They're doing it to, you know, it's weapons of mass destruction. And it's like humanitarian reasons. That's why we went in the 1990s, is protecting Q80s and humanitarian reasons. And that sounds stupid. But, you know, um, I know a lot of people that, that believe that kind of thing to this day. You know, I think it's weakened. That belief is weakened over the, the past, well, probably post the Iraq war. But um, I still think it's, it's um, strong overall. So... I ask if you ever had anything like a conspiracy stage, um, because I wonder, did you do something? It was like a taking the red pill moment, if you like. I did. Um, in 2006, uh, the first uh, film documentary that I ever saw was uh, In Plain Sight, and it was produced by Dave Von Cleese. And in the video itself, he offers the notion that the planes that crashed into the World Trade Center, especially uh, United Airlines Flight 175, he states that uh, that the plane was outfitted with a uh, missile underneath or a pod underneath the plane. And I said, wow, I'd never heard of this before. To me, that's profound. Um, and at that time, I, I didn't know anything about geopolitics or 9-11 and military industrial complex and all of that. All that. Um, so what, by this information, I'm like, well, who, who is this guy? And, you know, when I heard about a plane being outfitted with a missile, um, I gave it some validity because I didn't do any type of uh, investigative research on top of that. And the second film that I saw was Loose Change. Um, and Loose Change was a lot more profound in that um, they were saying when, when they showed the small hole on the second floor, which is where the top of the plane hit, and they didn't show the first floor where the plane actually damage is much more extensive. I actually thought that that was the initial hole. And again, this would be like, a revelation moment to me. So I'm like, wow, so how much further deeper can this conspiracy go? Because there is no limits to conspiracy theories, actually. It wasn't until I saw a video from Ryan Dawson in 2000, and I think it was late 2006 or beginning of 2007, uh, where he states that um, a plane did hit the Pentagon and that there was an Israeli uh, aspect uh, the Mossad using urban moving systems. I never heard of this because this was not reported by the news at the time. Uh, it was reported by Carl Cameron on Fox News, but that that series itself was um, cut off from, I think it was supposed to be tw uh, 10 parts. Actually, it was just five parts. But that wasn't given any type of uh, prominence in the media itself. So one has to really dig to find that. So I thought, and initially, I thought Ryan Dawson was, you know, a fake shill of some sort because with conspiracy theory, anything that caters to your, that challenges your worldview, you, you just, right away, you become very defensive. But, but luckily, because I was transforming my, myself through the nature of eliminating human constructs, I decided to listen to what Ryan Dawson had to say. Okay. And so what I, and what I did was I investigated uh, information that he said and disseminated it on myself. So here's my question, next question then. I think 
<laughs> I hope this is good listening for people, but I, I'm figuring stuff out of my own mind as we're going here. So I feel like you've just confirmed my case, right? But let's see if you agree. Because what you're saying is there was a kind of similar pattern to me there, where your interest in this started with some paradigm-breaking extreme thing, no plane hit the Pentagon, or all that kind of stuff, right? And then it, then it came back into something which we could call more solid. So what I would ask you is, that whole very sophisticated worldview you were talking about five minutes ago with the Arab interest, the Saudi interest, the Israeli interest, the American interest, and how these things came together. Do you feel you could have gone straight to that and bypassed no plane hit the Pentagon? Right? Because I'm not sure that I could have gone there straight away or progress there without going through a conspiracy theory so that i'll ask my second question as well at this time if not okay and you may maybe you say yeah i do i do and the conspiracy in which case conspiracy theory you can say well it's just a bad thing we should do away with it but if not if that played some role in breaking you out of your existing paradigm as i feel it did for me and if we also acknowledge conspiracy theory has all this detrimental stuff in it all these detrimental aspects what then do we do to replace it because you can't just get rid of it if it's playing a functional role so how do you replace it or what do you do to modify it or all the rest like i don't know what what do you think two, two me, questions, yeah. right no um it was an evolution of sorts my my stay within the realm of conspiracy theory was short-lived very short-lived it only took maybe two or three months at best before i started indulging into the intelligence apparatus. And what did it for me actually was a breakthrough. It was a forum that I used to uh, be a viewer of, and it was the uh, James Randi Education Forum, JRF, where a lot of the more prominent earlier uh, truth movement uh, protégés like Stephen Jones, Tony Zambotti, I think even David Chandler used to be a member, where they would, the dominant, uh, predominant conversation was the physics. And I said it in itself, I said, well, that's pretty interesting. I didn't know anything about physics. I still don't. But I said, well, there's a, there's a flip side to that coin. So why isn't anybody talking about the profiles of these people that were involved in the hijacking planes? Who are these people? And that led to me understanding the Middle East uh, paradigm as well as the intelligence paradigm because from there came the CIA, the NSA, the FBI and then from there came like the foreign lobby institutes of Israel, Saudi Arabia and then from there came um, the geopolitical aspects, the broader understanding of why this was allowed to happen. So I grew from limited conspiracy theories like no planes or like modified planes and I saw that as a dead end Luckily, whereas other people, it took them years to break out of it. But then you have people like, for example, Paul Thompson, who wrote The Terror Timeline. He didn't entertain any conspiracy theories right off the bat. All he did was collect um, news articles and then create a timeline of sorts in which it shows that the intelligence apparatus knew about certain 
instances like the Pachinko plot or the World Trade Center bombing in 93 and connected that to the events of September 11th. So what does that mm. say about him? Well, right? that's interesting. I, I will challenge you that we don't strictly know that Paul Thompson never spent, you know, right. a week locked in his bedroom going through conspiracy theories and then said, oh, hang on, this is rubbish. But that like 90% of this is rubbish, but actually this last 10% is really interesting. And he just never told us, right? And, but you know, with that being said, I think it's a very good example. Um, and Paul Thompson is always someone who struck like strictly to the facts and is actually uh, very good at dispelling conspiracy. You know, um, I think like his comment on, you know, with regard to what's been Laden killed in the raid in, in 2011, Paul Thompson just goes, well, you know, look at all these people who were there that we know exist, who could have spoken out about that if, you know, so I guess he has to have been, right? I guess that they were actually false reports of bin Laden dying prior to, to 2011. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty, you know, crisp logic of, you know, that just comes from knowing stuff about it, like knowing that um, people around, bin, when people said like the video was fake of, of bin Laden, um, you know, in the early years, well, you know, is I think it's Ayman Al Zahiri and a bunch of others sat there. Was, are they all yeah. fake too? Do they get lookalikes for all of them? And yeah, you know, but that that kind of comment comes, and I'm sure I was guilty of this myself at the time, like not knowing anything about it, like not knowing who Ayman Al Zahiri is. Um, you know, so, so anyway, I, I digress. But just just to push you on that one thing again, like, so do you feel that you could have gone straight to the geopolitical and just not had the conspiratorial at all, and you would have ended in the same place? No, because that's hard to, that's, that's actually, that's an impossible answer. I, I know it's an impossible question. Right. I, I can't answer it myself, right? right. I can right. sort of take a bit of a guess at it. Of like, no, I'm not sure that I know that I couldn't have access to difficult stuff, but even starting at a simple level, I think you need something to break your paradigm. That, so that's my speculation, right? So I, I don't know how you, I'm just asking really how you feel about it because you can't really answer it. I'm glad, I know, and actually I understood the question. I, I've, I'm, so, I'm very fortunate. Um, I'm glad. I wouldn't have changed anything right off the bat um, because I have the pleasure of saying that it was short-lived. Now, if it took years for me to break out of that mold, I probably would have said, you know what, I wish I would have known uh, this information when I started, right? So it's, that's why I think it's a very hard answer to say in the general basis of it. But for me, um, I'm glad I went through it because mm. it also showed that I can um, – show that these conspiracies are false and that I and that everything else can be questioned. Um, I think that the greatest reward of all is that um, when I used to be an anti-theist, I was um, somebody who was quite sure of my position. And it took me, that took me a long time. It took me two years to really come to terms and say everything that I believed at that point was false. And that's the real nature of conspiracy, right? Because to change someone's mind doesn't happen overnight. It varies. It takes maybe days or weeks or years, sometimes even much longer than that. And this was the breakthrough that Indian philosopher Jiddu Krishnamurti once stated, is that in his talk in 1963 at the University of Berkeley, he says that in order for us to come out of our predispositions in guarding traditions, uh, our worldviews, device worldviews I talked about before, we need a transformation of the mind, the, the real radical revolution of the words, not a revolution of the streets. You can't make change 
into the government unless you change yourselves. And that the, the real nature of change is that you need everybody involved in order to make that change where it really counts, which is the, the government itself. But if you're going at it with just a couple of hundred people or a thousand people, you're gonna lose. So what you need to do is to break out of these traditional aspects or these human constructs, change this radical uh, view of the world, which is false anyway, it was plainly false. It's an, an unnatural view. And it only goes to harm yourself in its essence. Conspiracies are meant to do that. Real, like, fantastical conspiracies that lead to nowhere. And you're always going to argue for them and defend for them. And no, but on the other hand, whether the person knows it or not, and I can't say for sure, um, but whether they know it or not, they know that they can't move out of that mindset. Because in order to, in order to graduate from there, you have to have knowledge. But that's my point out of you when you say they lead to nowhere. I think that's demonstrably untrue because in your case, they led to what you're doing now. In my case, they led to what you're doing now. And I don't think that's an aberration. I don't think it's just that, oh, we'll have this funny thing at the start. But then, because I see this parallel with whenever I go to like a, a group on, well, I was involved for years in a group on spirituality and meditation. Um, if you ask people there the question, like, so how, how did you get started in all this, right? A good percentage of them will sort of look a bit embarrassed, stare at their feet and start muttering. Well, it's, a bit, it's a bit embarrassing, actually, but I was actually involved in this kind of quite cultish group. Um, and that seemed like it had everything. And then I gravitated away from that. And they've got like real sad stories about people that, you know, were in it for 20 years and lost their lives to it. Um, but it seems to be that is, that is so prevalent that there's a reason why it is. If we're talking about spiritual cults or if we're talking about kind of conspiracy cults, you know, um, and that's what I'm, I suppose, I'll, I'm just going to leave as the open question that I will go away and contemplate and um, maybe the, the listeners have thoughts on. Of if you're going to get rid of that, and, and I think there's good reason to, I think there's like huge reason to get rid of spiritual courts, right? Horrible, destructive things. Awful, right? And a lot of good reason to get rid of them or to, hmm, uh, let's say, not get stuck in conspiracy courts. I don't kind of see them as quite as destructive. They're not as all-consuming. But to be stuck in them is quite meant it's mentally corrosive okay if that becomes you know your worldview and i have eschewed going to conspiratorial groups over here the, the few times i have i've not enjoyed it because everyone people in my experience were trying to out conspiracy each other right like who could come up with the biggest meta theory of all and i'd be hearing about how the rothschilds built the pyramids or something you know um two hundred thousand years ago and it's all been going on since then and i just have no kind of time for it um but, like, what, what do you put in this place? That's the question. And you need, you need to have something that addresses why people are drawn into that in the first place, because they're offering certainty. They're offering a worldview. They're offering a paradigm that shatters your existing one. Um, and that's, I guess, that I'm not going to answer that question now because it's something that I am, you know, searching for myself. What, what do you put in place of that? Well, I think, I, I think going back to that, um, the, the reason why I made the change out of that conspiracy mindset was that um, I was very fortunate enough to go through at the same time, a change within myself. So I didn't just look at one piece of information because it catered to a specific worldview. I decided to look at everything. And that's what people within the conspiracy mindset of 9-11 need to do. 
Um, and I hate to just lay blame on the truth movement itself because I think the movement isn't a single movement, but it's a conglomeration of different sectarian little groups within itself that often argue with one another. And that there's many competing conspiracy theories. What they need to do, I think, is this would be my advice for them, is to alleviate themselves from these divisive worldviews um, and look at information that they're not comfortable looking at. And that that in itself will broaden their spectrum of looking at 9-11 in a way that they never probably looked at it before, because that's what happened to me. And I, I, like I said, back in 2006, my first time, I didn't know anything about who Ayman al-Zwahiri was. Um, I didn't know really much about Osama bin Laden or if he was a Sunni or, yeah. you know, no, for example. I, I totally agree. I think you're addressing there how to come out of it, right? Which is great, but it doesn't address why get into it in the first place or what would you get into alternatives that. But just to, just to say on that, I think there is um, a potentially a meeting place, right? And, and what I think is, because you're in a world of distance, like you say, when you, when you first saw Ryan Dawson, you were like, well, who's this shill? You know, because he's saying that a plane did hit the Pentagon, you know? And, and because there are people who are trying to sell you false stuff, both in support of um, 9, you know, 9-11 being a, an Al-Qaeda terrorist attack, that's it, nothing more to see here, move along. There's totally false information coming from that direction. And there's also false information coming from you know, it was uh, the aliens from the Pleiades who did 9-11 or whatever, you know? So you're trying to walk that tightrope. And I think attacking people's, the positions people hold is not always the most effective way, right? So so as opposed to like saying, well, yeah, clearly a plane at the Pentagon, you say, okay, okay. Like, even if you think no plane at the Pentagon, right? There is also, in addition to that, you know, it, it is interesting to look at who was on the plane right because you are discarding a useful angle if you're not looking at that even if you think the plane didn't take off you you think these people are uh, you know whatever you think happened there and because it never hurts to know more right to to say that isn't true it's like you're saying that well i would be in a weaker position if i actually knew more about this than i do you know so which i think is a very strange state of affairs you know so um yeah, I, I agree with that, but I still don't think it, it gets to, if you take away conspiracy, what do you put in its place? Because, yeah. Right, uh, okay, I, I understand now. Um, that's a hard answer. What would, what would be in replace of, like, someone who uh, doesn't believe a, a plane hit the Pentagon, for example? Well, no, so what, what I mean, I mean, like, me being 18, walking into a bookshop, what book could I have picked up other than David Icke's, which would have got me on this course? Ah, I don't, I right. don't know. Right. I'm saying, yeah. I know it's not Peter Dale Scott's because that's where you end up. It's not right. where you start off. I'm right. wondering, could it have been John Pilgrim? I'm wondering, could it have been confessions of an economic hitman? But I don't think that's the case because David Icke's is a, a total meta theory of reality, right? It's a total red pill. Um, and so I don't know if I can't say for myself, what, could replace that and I can't then I can't possibly comment on how do we get rid of conspiracy theory you know right because it dominated the spectrum so early on he, the, the first conspiracy theory for 9-11 happened in 2002 and it happened in the fall almost right away and this came about at the same time with the uh the Jersey Widows when they started to uh to advocate for a an independent congressional inquiry 
Thierry Mason, the French author, came out with a book called Lepentgate, and it was about the photos that were released uh, to the public. There was like three photos, and it just showed um, this foam, the fire, uh, fire engine foam hitting the Pentagon, putting out the fire, and it showed this small hole on the second floor of the Pentagon, and Mason stated that that was the impact hole made by Flight 77. He was wrong because the foam was covering the entire first floor where the damage was, I think, 110 feet wide as opposed to the, the hole in the cell. But because of that information that he put out, it created uh, and spawned all these theories and led to so many people saying, well, look, here's a picture of the hole and it took hold. And it was more pronounced in 2006 when loose change uh, repeated that information from Mason. And then from there, it went beyond saying instead of um, a small plane or a hyperplane in the Pentagon, now no plane in the Pentagon. And this is also in contradiction to the, the evidence eyewitnesses of the people who were actually there who said they saw a plane. But because there's no video of a plane in the Pentagon, except for the, the frames by the two security boots, uh, which is on the... Uh, the uh, east side of the west wall. Um, because there's no video of it, well, we could just throw out the, uh, the evidences of the people and they might be shows and they might be forced to uh, say that um, a plane hit the Pentagon. But, so the possibilities are endless there. So, and more, and one thing I noticed about conspiracy theories for 9-11 is that some of them are really superficial, but they're, almost teetering on being rational to now which is full-blown fantastical, full-blown uh, outside the realms of normalcy. And people still, a small group of people still cater onto it because for them to make that change and to know that these conspiracies are false um, requires one to start looking at the information on the other side. And that would be the, re and whether they can, dis well, it'll be up to them whether they want to make that change that is needed uh, to dismiss uh, conspiracies and look at information that challenges their worldviews. But, but I think it's, too, don't go by me, I'm a pessimist, but I think it's too late. Um, it's been, what, 20 years, 19 years now, and we still have a large percentage of people that don't even believe a plane at the World Trade Center. And I, to me, that is... It's, it's really depressing, and it's also defeat, defeatist because there are times, now I'll come clean here with you and to anybody else who's listening, is that there are times in the day where I'm like, I might as well just give up and not even go forward with this because to reach these people would take, you know, a, a lot of people, a lot of researchers, and try to um, get out of this hole that they've dug for us. And it's going to take much, much time to do this. I think years. And that's the thing with that we don't have at our disposal is time. Because the more the time passes, the more that the suspects, quote, suspects are getting older and they're dying. Just like JFK. Okay, Adam, I think I've covered everything I want to say. Anything, anything more you want to add in? No, no, that, I think that's it.
Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. And um, I think this is a topic we'll have to revisit because it's really, it's got a lot of thoughts going in my mind without necessarily having conclusions about them. So thanks for that. I hope people have enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you, Richard. Thanks.